uh, basically the whole time uh, I've known Jason. So I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here today. I was invited to, to give a lecture at St. Mary's Seminary where uh, uh, Joe went to school and where uh, Jason went to school and where I taught for five years. Uh, it was a privilege to be there yesterday, but uh, even more of a privilege to be here uh, with you guys today. Um, and I understand that you're in the middle of a series right now, Community of the Gospel Eyes, so I didn't want to be that, um, that ignorant guest speaker who shows up not knowing what's going on, so I've listened to Joe's last three messages, so I, I'm going to try to fit what I do today here into the Community of the Gospel Eyes and, um, and see if, uh, see if uh, I can add something to what you've already done in the substantive messages you've provided. Uh, will you guys join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege of being called your children We thank you that you are, as our text this morning says, our precious cornerstone and that we are living stones oriented around you and toward you. We thank you that you are the rock upon which we stand. We thank you for the many blessings you've given us that we certainly do not deserve. Uh, And this morning we ask that you would help us to set our minds upon you and upon your word that we might gain something we can take forth with us uh, into this new week. Uh, that will certainly bring all of its own challenges. We are appreciative of the time we have together today and eternally grateful for what you've done for us in Christ. And we pray all these things because of him and in his name. Amen. Uh, So today's passage uh, is all about living stones. Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone, and his followers also called uh, living stones. Uh, And in, in my experience, rocks or stones can be used for all sorts of of different things, things that maybe they weren't necessarily intended for, um, but nevertheless still function uh, in a way that works. I recently moved from, from one house to another, and I was um, in the backyard trying to put something back together, and uh, the attic is where all my tools were, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to walk all the way up and get a hammer. So I grabbed a big rock, and I just, uh, almost caveman style, banged back in the nail that needed to be there. And it worked, right? Uh, It was every bit as inelegant looking and sounding uh, uh, as it sounds to you, but it worked, right? Uh, Also recently, we got a new puppy. Uh, His name is Wesley. Yes, he's adorable, right? Uh, And um, this is a makeshift uh, little structure that I built in the backyard to keep him from going under the fence. It's it's made uh, completely of... Uh, different types of stones, as you can see. Um, uh, you're, I'm sure after hearing these two stories, you're beginning to get a less than flattering picture of my ability to work with my hands, but uh, I do try. Uh, the point is that stones can be used in, uh, in aid, as an aid in constructing all sorts of things, whether it's furniture, as in my first example, uh, or stones, uh, a barrier made of stones in my second example. Stones are foundational to so many things. And today's text that we have likens both Jesus and his followers to stones in a spiritual structure. Okay. So um, if you have a copy of the Bible and you'd like to turn to First uh, Peter with me, or uh, it will be up here on the screen, you can simply follow along. And let me, let me say, I do feel, I, I might even unbutton my button here, uh, because I do feel somewhat uncomfortable. Everybody's wearing football jerseys, and had, and, and had I known, I would have worn my Redskins jersey, but then I might not have been well-received as I am right now wearing a suit. I, but it's worse my wife is a Cowboys fan, right? So football season really, really is hard. So let's, let's read the text. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by humans but chosen and precious in the sight of God, even you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, 
are being built to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands written in scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in it will never be put to shame. Therefore, there is value for those who trust. But for those who do not trust, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that will make people stumble and a rock that will make them fall. Those who disobey stumble on the word for which purpose they were established. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of the one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were no people, but now you are a people of God. You were once without mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Now, I think we need to understand something about Peter's audience before we can really dig into this text. And we need to understand not only the audience, but what the audience was facing at that particular time. Um, You may have some familiarity with what was going on during the time of the New Testament and the centrality of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay. This letter was written sometime in the uh, mid-70s to late-90s during uh, one of two different era- eras of persecution uh, after the destruction of the temple, either in the 70s under uh, Nero or in the 90s under Domitian. It's not important that you know that right now, but what is important is that you recognize that this is being written in the wake of persecution. And people are being asked to stand strong in the wake of persecution understand salvation, and become the church. And our text today falls at the end of a much longer section, beginning in 113, that includes six very specific exhortations. And I just want to go through those very quickly. Uh, The first uh, is found in 113, and Peter tells his readers, set your hope on grace. The second comes in 115, and he tells them to pursue holiness. The third is to fear God. The fourth is to love one another. The fifth, to desire the word. And then today, the sixth, is to to build or to become, along with God, a spiritual house. And these are all, I think, building blocks for what it means to be the church. So we only get to focus on one of them today. Uh, But as I've listened to Joe's messages uh, from the last few weeks, he's been taking you uh, through these, uh, even if from different texts. So what I want to do in the time that we have this morning is, uh, this is already a a fairly brief, fairly short passage, but I want to break the text up into three sort of smaller bite-sized chunks and look at what it has to say directly to us. So I want to begin here with uh, the first three verses, verses four to six, Jesus, the living stone, the central point of orientation for every other stone. Um, as you come to him, now, I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this one phrase. I, my typical method is I try to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, just to give us a little bit of an idea of what's going on in the text in a way that gives us something that we can take away. But as you come to him, that's an, an odd way to start this text because we're not familiar with what, came, uh, what has come before. He has just been talking to his audience about craving spiritual milk so that they can taste and see that God is good. And now he transitions from what seems to be a fairly odd craved spiritual milk uh, to uh, this building metaphor. Uh, and I want to point out that we actually do see this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 1 to 17, this sort of strange combination of things. But let's get to this next phrase. As you, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by humans, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. 
Chosen and precious in the sight of God. Now, we are accustomed to thinking about Jesus as the cornerstone. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that today. But it's interesting that he begins with the image of a living stone. Because he's going to go on to say that every other person who calls on the name of Christ is also a living stone. A living stone that must be oriented to him. So uh, Peter's audience is going to be described as living stones, and he will be identified not just as any living stone, Jesus, but the ultimate cornerstone. But it says here, rejected by humans, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. And when we hear, uh, typically when we hear rejected by humans, what we're thinking of the crucifixion, we're thinking of the passion, when Jesus was rejected as he foretold and as he was crucified, but probably in the immediate and proximate context here, This is talking about the rejection of Jesus by the contemporaries of Peter, the contemporaries of Peter's audience. Peter's audience is living in a world that is hostile toward the gospel. And Peter's audience is living in a world where people are rejecting Jesus every day. And so he's asking them to stand strong in the midst. And then he says to them, moving forward, even you yourselves as living stones... A spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the irony is most of us, when we talk about the church, we're so used to hearing, well, the church is not brick and mortar. The church is not stonework. The church is people, right? So it's ironic that Peter would take this imagery of a new temple, of a new building, and he would apply it to the church. He would apply it to Christians. But here's what you need to be aware of. Uh, And I I mentioned this just a moment ago when we talked about the era in which this letter was written. In the early days of the church, the temple was still standing. The temple in Jerusalem was the one place where Jews and early Christians believed the Spirit of God dwelled. And the, the hope and the expectation was that Jesus would come back at any moment, at any day, and fill the temple with glory and set up shop. And become the kingdom of God on earth. And the kingdom of God would overthrow the kingdom of Rome. But then in the year 70, the temple got destroyed. And the whole ethos, the whole uh, direction of early Christianity pivoted. They no longer were expecting this. And so this, this new temple imagery is important for the way they are thinking about moving forward. They are a, a dispersed people uh, living in a land without a home, without a temple. And then he says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious. What does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? We are so accustomed to thinking of things that are a part of our Christian terminology. Jesus is the rock upon which I stand. You know, like we really don't we really don't think critically about these things that have become common Christianese. Right. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation stone or the setting stone. Anybody, any accomplished um, masons in the building today? Probably not, right? Uh, it looks like there were some accomplished masons who were responsible for this building, but probably you're not. And I, try, I try to think about this in terms of other building metaphors. Anybody in here do any framing? Okay, all right. A little bit, all right? I try to think about this with respect to a load-bearing wall, but it really doesn't do justice. You can knock down a load-bearing wall, and you might do some damage to the structure, but part of the structure is still going to be standing, right? Uh, I thought about the foundation. If you don't pour the foundation correctly, sometimes the house will start to crack and lean, but I've been in some really bad houses that are cracking and leaning that are still standing, right? 
Uh, it's a completely different metaphor than what we expect because a cornerstone was the first stone set in any construction of any masonry foundation. And it was the one stone that every other stone had reference to. It was the one most important stone in any structure. And everything else in the building is defined by its relationship to that stone. What a, what a perfect metaphor for our relationship to Christ. Actually, uh, here are some examples of some fairly famous um, American uh, cornerstones. Uh, but today, they're a little more than a fancy addition at the end, which is uh, serving to memorialize when and where the structure was built. But think about that for a moment. Jesus is the living stone. We are the living stones, but he's also the cornerstone. He's the one stone in the structure around which every other thing is oriented and toward which everything else is oriented. Now, let's look at the last verse in the first section of this text, because to me, it's the most important part. Whoever believes in it, this cornerstone, will never be put to shame all right, I want to point two things out about this verse. The first is that the, the Greek phrase here, never, is something in Greek we call emphatic negation. It's two uh, Greek negatives put together. And it, what it does is it negates any possibility or potentiality whatsoever. So never, ever, ever might be a good way to possibly translate it. But the second thing I want to point out here is the last part. Whoever believes in it will never be put to shame. Now, we are accustomed to thinking about heaven or eternity or eternal life or what, whatever uh, sort of metaphor you like to use when you think about pie in the sky in the sweet by and by when I die, right? But this does not say whoever believes in it will have eternal life. Or whoever believes in it will go on into eternity. It says whoever believes in it will never be put to shame. Now, most of us are not familiar with the dynamics of an honor-shame culture. But these texts were, uh, were very much written in what we know to be an honor-shame culture. And in order for me to illustrate this, I need to actually talk about Seinfeld. <laughs> Anybody Seinfeld fans in here? Yeah. How many of you remember The Little Jerry, season 8, episode 11? In season 8, episode 11, The Little Jerry, uh, Jerry has uh, bounced a check at the local bodega owned by Marcelino here. Okay. And Marcelino uh, has decided to shame Jerry by placing that check out for everybody to see. It's right there by the cash register. Jerry comes in and he's like, Marcelino, what's going on? You know, can you take my check down? And he's like, sorry, can't do it, Jerry. Jerry pays the bill in cash with an extra $20 on top, and, and Marcelino still refuses to take it down. It's, a, it's pretty humorous because throughout the episode, everything that Jerry does causes him to somehow interface with his shame. Someone comes to him and says, are you having trouble paying your bills? I can lend you some money. He's like, I'm fine. That's my best. I'm fine, right? Um, this check stands as a memorial to his shame. Now, when we look at the, the writings that we have uh, in, in the Old and New Testaments, we are very much dealing with this sort of honor-shame culture, okay? Um, I got an official example from... Uh, uh, people who study shame societies today. Uh, this is a quote. In an honor-shame society, the means of control is through producing shame and the threat of ostracism. The shame-honor worldview seeks an honor balance and can lead to revenge dynamics. A person in this type of culture may ask, will I be ashamed or will I look ashamed if I do X? Or how will people perceive me if I do Y? 
Shame cultures are typically based on the concepts of pride and honor and appearances are what counts. Think about how powerful social ostracism is. Okay? Especially in a world where uh, you can pick whatever God you want. Right? Oh, your, your God has let you down. This is my God. These are our gods. Look at this temple. We have a temple to Apollo. Apollo has never failed us. You worship this crucified God, and now you're being persecuted. Now you're being thrown out into the diaspora, into the wilderness to fend for yourselves. When I graduated from undergraduate school, I uh, was on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ for a number of years, and I, uh, I lived over in Istanbul, Turkey. And uh, uh, Turkey is still very much... Uh, one of these honor-shame societies. Uh, everything is about the saving of face. Right? And uh, I'm pretty good with languages. I had to learn a fair amount of languages as I went through school. And I picked up Turkish pretty quickly. And so uh, I picked up Turkish better than I picked up the landscape of, of Turkey, the geography of Turkey. Uh, so I would get into a cab and I would say to the, uh, the cab driver, uh, excuse me, can you take me to uh, one of my normal places was a place called Besiktas. Can you take me to Besiktas? And he would go, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'll take you to Besiktas. Now he had no idea that I knew how to speak Turkish beyond just a few words. So he would ride up. This, this happened constantly. He would ride up to another cabbie, and he'd roll the window down, and he'd say, hey, I got this yabanja is the word for um, foreigner. I got this yabanja in the back who wants to go to Besiktas, and I have no idea how to get there. Can you tell me how to get there? And he'd say, oh, yeah. And then uh, he would make up some, some lie about why he had stopped to talk to this other cabbie, right? Uh, because he was worried that if I asked him the question and he said no, that it would make him look bad. It would bring shame upon him and his profession because somehow he was less than worthy of being a taxi driver because he didn't know how to get to Besiktas. I actually had a very, a very interesting experience when I caught one of them trying to cheat me one morning. My parents had come out to visit me, and I was, I was really tired. I took them to the airport in Istanbul at about 5 in the morning. And taxi cab drivers in, in Turkey, and it's this way in a lot of places in the world, they have a day rate, and then they have a night rate. And the night rate is about one and a half times the day rate. Uh, and the word for day is gunduz. So every 15 seconds or so, the word gunduz goes up. And you know, okay, I'm, I'm getting the day right. And the, the word for night is gege. And every so often, gege will pop. So it's 5 in the morning, and it's clearly daytime, and I'm traveling back. And I'm, I'm within a mile of where I live. And my head's been back the whole time. And I pop my head up, and I look, and I see the word gege. And I don't handle it very well. <laughs> I said, hey, I'm not some stupid foreigner. Are you trying to cheat me? And he was shocked. Shocked that I caught him, but also shocked that I knew enough Turkish to speak to him in a way uh, that would bring about this response. And, he, and I was like, today is gunduz. It's gunduz. And he's like, look, look, look. And he, while he was saying look, he intentionally pressed the reset button, which sent his fare all the way back to zero. He was looking at a $60, uh, the equivalent of about a $60 fare. But in order to avoid the shame that would come along with him trying to cheat me, he pushed it all the way back to zero, and he ended up with about a $2 fare. This is the type of dynamic we're dealing with. And so when Peter says uh, to his audience, if you believe in this stone, you will never be put to shame. He's not saying, believe this, and you'll go to heaven. Amen. Like That's not what we're talking about here. This is about a broader cultural dynamic. Okay. You are a part of this living, breathing structure with Christ at the head, Christ the cornerstone to which all of you are oriented and that Christ will not allow you to be put to shame here or in the future. 
So uh, just to, to sort of quickly recap this verse section, okay? Um, God is constructing a spiritual building made of these living stones. Jesus, the, the living stone and cornerstone, is the central point of orientation for every other living stone. And then the living stones who abide in him will never, ever be put to shame. I want to emphasize that the Greek text makes that explicit. Okay? Here we have a building metaphor which actually helps point out that the people, not the bricks and mortar and stone, are the church. So let's move on to our, our second section of text here. And it's these middle two verses. Those who stumble. Now, I think the first part here, for those of us who believe, for those of us who call upon the name of Christ, is axiomatic. Therefore, there is value for those who trust. I, I, I pastored a Baptist church here for eight years. So when I say something like that, I'm generally expecting an amen. So let's try that again. Okay. And we'll pretend like I didn't have to coax you into it. Therefore, there is value for those who trust. Okay. Ooh, I got a brother there. Yeah. All right. Now I'm really feeling at home. Okay. This, I think, is something that we all recognize. But then we move to the second half, the other side of the coin, the contrast. But for those who do not trust, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So what we're going to do now is we're going to transition in the text from not only how things are perceived from the perspective of those who believe but also from the perspective of Christ, who becomes the stone upon which they stumble or the stone that crushes them. Now, I'm a huge fan of underdog stories, uh, and I'm a huge believer in the idea that almost anything can go back to football. I expected an amen there, too, given all of the, the football jerseys, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of set the table. Uh, I think I might get thrown out of here uh, when I, the next few slides come up. But we're going to start with this guy. How many of you remember Kurt Warner? Kurt Warner? Yeah, okay. Couple. Oh, my Lord. I don't, I don't have any slides of him. I'm sorry. But we'll start, we'll start with this guy because he's safe. And there's no Rams fans in here. No Rams haters, maybe. Um, this guy started off in a Division II school, Northern Iowa, and he was a lightly regarded prospect. Okay? He was, prior to the year 1999, when he attained fame, he had a brief stint with the Iowa Barnstormers of the Arena Football League. He played three seasons there. Then, right before the 1999 football season, he was stocking groceries. Okay? They brought him on in St. Louis, the then St. Louis Rams, to be the backup quarterback for, does anybody know? Anybody remember? Trent Green, are you a Redskins fan? The reason I know that is because we let him go along with a host of other great quarterbacks that went on to lead teams to other places. Brad Johnson won a Super Bowl. Stan Humphreys lost a Super Bowl but still went, right? We haven't won anything in 25 years, so I'm still a little salty, okay? This guy was not considered to be a prospect at all. He was the backup to Trent Green, and everybody was picking this team to win the Super Bowl. And then what happens? Trent Green, in a preseason game, tears his ACL, goes down, and Dick Vermeil comes to the podium, like he often did, in tears. Right? He came in tears. The season's over. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll just have to make do with our backup. Well, what ended up happening was one of the greatest offensive seasons in NFL history. 
Uh, Kurt Warner went on to be a two-time league MVP in 99 and 2001, a Super Bowl champion, the Super Bowl MVP. Uh, he took two more teams to the Super Bowl and lost both times, and he was in the Hall of Fame class in 2017. The stone that the, the builders rejected, the builders of this team, became the, uh, the cornerstone. Uh, he became the MVP. He became the one around which everything else is oriented. All right. I know this next one might get me run out of here, but let's ramp it up a little bit. How about this guy? Oh, I hear it. I'm hearing it, yeah. Jason was looking at my slides earlier. He's like, you, you know you're in Baltimore, right? But it's, you know, it could be worse, right? Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay, now, and so let's do this, but because we're accustomed to thinking of this Tom Brady, let's look at this Tom Brady. This was Tom Brady at the, at the Combine, and uh, not a particularly impressive-looking specimen, right? Not a particularly impressive-looking specimen. He, he did not start the full four years when he was at the University of Michigan. He was beaten out by Drew Henson, who went on to play baseball. He was drafted 199th in the 2000 NFL draft. Six different quarterbacks were drafted before him, including the vaunted Ravens quarterback, Chris Redman. How many of you remember him? And all of his shoulder issues. And a guy named Giovanni Carnazzi from Hofstra, who is uh, today a uh, self-described goat herder who doesn't own a television. Okay? <laughs> I, I understand why. And this is who that particular rejected stone has become. Three-time league MVP, six-time Super Bowl champion. I'm sorry, five-time be speaking proleptically here, four-time Super Bowl MVP, some would say the greatest of all time, but of course I put that there in quotes, uh, I mean in, que in uh, question marks, because I lived here in Baltimore for eight years. I'm 44, I'll be 45 this year, I've lived all over the country, and even though I've been gone from here for 10 years, I spent the longest period of my adult life at any one stretch here, eight years, and I still remember I was in the gym with one of my buddies uh, who's a lifelong uh, Baltimore uh, resident. And he was like, who's, who's the greatest quarterback of all time? And I said, I don't know. Maybe this was, this was probably 2005. Maybe Montana. Maybe Elway. And like his face just falls. I mean, he's, he's staring at me for a good 30 seconds. And he's like, it's Johnny Yu, son. And I was like, Johnny Unitas. So, so I know that some of you might still think that Johnny Unitas is the greatest. But I think the consensus is leaning this way. Okay. The point is that that thing which is despised despised by those who killed him and despised by the contemporaries of Peter. That thing which has been rejected as lacking value becomes the most valuable piece. Jesus is that most valuable piece. And it's really, this way of doing things is really the incipient, countercultural, ever-creeping manner in which the church is built and the gospel spreads. It starts as a tiny mustard seed and then grows on to become the greatest of the trees of the garden, right? It works in a way that is not expected. And then Peter says that not just this has become the one which the builders have rejected, but it's a stone that makes people stumble and a rock that makes them fall. This is a passage we're all quite familiar with. Can it be that a, that a stone which is meant for something positive or any entity which is meant for something positive can, under, circum, under certain circumstances, have the exact opposite effect? I actually have a, a personal story uh, that relates to this 
directly. I, uh, I'm a runner. I like to run. And a few years ago, uh, we, when we were still living in North Carolina, we, we took our kids to a, a private school. Schools in North Carolina are really, really bad. Uh, we are, I think at the time, we were 48th in overall effectiveness, 50th in, in public teacher pay. Um, so we decided to, to send our kids to a, to a private school. And my son, who had played football, uh, moved to a school where there was no football. So he said, well, I think I'm going to run cross country. And they had just built, in this area right over here to the left, they had just sort of, with a little caterpillar, carved out a, uh, a cross country track. And he said, Dad, why don't you come out and help the team? Why don't you run with us? you like to run? I said, sure, that would be great. Now, in the area that I have pointed out, because they had just dug this, uh, this track, there was a huge, huge muddy, mucky, almost... Uh, how many of you remember when you were growing up, uh, the, uh, you, you would see people uh, sinking in quicksand? Like, I kind of felt like from every show I watched as a kid that that would be a reality for me at some point. I'd be jogging along, and then all of a sudden I'd hit quicksand. It, it was like in every show in the 70s and 80s, somebody was having to be rescued from quicksand, right? But it was the same sort of thing. And when you would run, uh, uh, it would come, the mud, if you would hit the area, it would come right up to about, about my ca- the middle of my calf muscle. After it happened three or four times, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something to sort of solve this. So I took a great big stone, and I set it along with a few sticks right at, the, right at the side of where this muddy area was. And that was my signal to all the people who were running with us. This is where you don't want to step, right? So that stone was a marker. It was supposed to be a marker. But one day I'm running, and I'm not paying attention. And I realize at the last minute that I'm about to jump into the mud. And I see the stone, and I jump to the side. And when I do, I actually trip over the stone. And it's one of those ones where you ever had that slow motion fall where you're, like, trying to stop yourself, and everybody's watching you, and you're falling. Uh, and I ended up landing on a tree, and, like, I had a whelp on my shin for about a month. Uh, in that particular instance, the thing that was supposed to be the most helpful ended up being a source of stumbling. Now, that's a humorous story, but this right here is not humorous. And in just a moment, Peter's going to tell us what we can do as the church when we see these people who have rejected the cornerstone, the one who makes uh, men stumble, the one who makes them fall. We have a responsibility, and that responsibility is in the next passage. But before we get to that, if you want to see a rock that makes my wife stumble... um, I knew it was on when I, I was on her phone one day, and I was on her Instagram page, and, and I was like, well, what's up with this? And she's like, oh, I like him. And I was like, well, why don't we find a couple of pictures of him in a nice cardigan with a button down? I mean, like, this Instagram page, and listen, this is just not fair to the rest of us, guys, right? I work out, you know, four extra times a week now just so I can sort of approximate this. But we, on a serious note, there's a stone that makes men stumble, a rock that makes them fall. Those who disobey stumble on the word for which purpose they were established. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm the guest speaker. I'm not even going to touch this today. I'm just going to point to Joe. I'm going to point to Jason and say, you guys need to handle this. I will say this. This passage, in my estimation, is not to be read as some predestinarian statement of divine constraint, as if God has purposed that these people before all time stumble, and that is why they exist as objects of wrath. There are some who would teach that. That's not how I understand what's going on here. So, to recap, those of us who are the living stones, we enjoy our interconnectedness. We enjoy being interconnected with Jesus, the living stone, the precious cornerstone. But those who have rejected the cornerstone are crushed beneath its weight. 
And so then the question naturally arises, if we're going to be the church, the community of the gospelized, do we have some responsibility here? What is our role in this situation? As we go into the last section of this text, we see that the role is twofold. In this section, we see both the identity and the duty of those who are living stones. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. I like to point this out constantly because I don't think we make enough of it in our American individualistic, me first, us for no more culture. We have a tendency to think of my God, my Bible, me in my prayer closet with my few friends. Right? And I know you guys do community groups and it's something that is a part of who you are as the church. But a lot of churches, a lot of Christians don't think about themselves as a part of a corporate entity. But notice that all four of these descriptors that we're going to talk about here, all four of them are about identity as a corporate group. You are a chosen race. He says, you are a royal priesthood. And, and I, I'm sure you've heard this in the past from, from the two great preachers you have, but this is a text of great import to the Protestant Reformation and their idea of the priesthood of all believers. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his possession. This is counter to the ways in which we often think about ourselves, but we should ultimately conceive of ourselves as being one part of a much greater entity of living stones. But here is the role that I was talking about. You're a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, so that you may proclaim the excellence of the one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. When I go back and I read that section that we just talked about, for which purpose they were established, I don't see that as being some God established this from the foundation of the world because of this verse right here. We, as those who can proclaim the excellence of the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. I have to believe that there is something effectual about that, that there is something that you and I as living stones can do to bring in other living stones, that our job is to continually tell others through various types of proclaiming God's excellence. And then we move on to this quotation from Hosea, which is taken out of context, but all the New Testament writers do it. Once you were no people, but now you are a people of God. You were once without mercy, but now you have received mercy. I had a seminary professor back in the late 90s, early 2000s, one of the, most, uh, one of the people who had the most impact upon me. And he used to describe the church as God's divine project. And he said, think about this. There are people who go to a football game week in and week out. We were, I was living in Dallas at the time. And these people don't know each other. Many of the people, if they knew each other in real life, might not get along, might not like each other. But they've all come to unite around cheering on the Cowboys or, or in that case, cheering that the Cowboys might lose. Okay? Um, and in the same way, the church is a group of people who gather together weekly, uniting around our shared living stone, our cornerstone. But the truth is, uh, we, uh, otherwise... People might not come together for the, for, uh, to gather together apart from this one thing that unites us. I'll be honest. I pastored a church here in Baltimore for eight years. There was a couple in the church that I absolutely despised. I'm just going to be completely honest, right? 
And I used to really struggle with this as a pastor. How do you minister to people that you really don't like? They, in my estimation, they were selfish. They did everything they could to bring glory to themselves. They would, uh, uh, I thought, misappropriate funds. There was all sorts of things that really bothered me. And, and admittedly, this was sort of a, a petty thing uh, for me. But I had a, a mentor point out to me that whether I liked these people or not, they were, in the words of this text, they were my people. Where once we were not a people, and if I had my own selfish, petty choice, they might not be my people. By virtue of the fact that not, not only were they members of my local church, but they, that they are members of the universal church, they are now my people. And we are now united not around this pettiness, but around the mutual mercy that we have received. So let me, uh, let me just quickly cap, recap this, and, and I'll, I'll try to bring this plane to the ground. As the church, we are brought together through our mutuality as living stones. We are bound to proclaim the excellence of our precious cornerstone. And we are ultimately united by our preferences, not by our preferences, but by the mercy we have received in Christ. How many of you are familiar with uh, Hadrian's Wall from history? Uh, Hadrian's Wall was known as the Roman Wall or the Picts Wall. And it was a defensive fortification in the Roman province of Britannia, now known as Britain. And it was uh, begun in the year 122 CE under the reign of the emperor Hadrian. It ran from the banks of the River Tyne near the, the North Sea, as you can see, to the Solway Firth on the Irish Sea and was the northern limit of the Roman Empire, immediately north of which were the lands of the uh, northern ancient Britons, including the group known as the Picts. Okay. This wall we see here was 73 miles long and stood for years as a defensive barrier. And then after that, it stood as a testimony to the building prowess of those in Roman power. But years later, years and years and years later, as Christianity began to spread throughout Britain, the stones that had been used once to construct Hadrian's Wall were taken down and they were used to build churches all throughout the English countryside. And some of those are still in existence. You can see some of these here. Here's an example. Um, one of my PhD students recently took his uh, quote-unquote pilgrimage uh, to uh, Britain, and he took pictures of all of these. And these are all structures that were ultimately built from the stones, the living stones, if you will, of Hadrian's Wall. Now, I know I'm changing the metaphor just a little bit, but in a sense, the wall had to die so that its building blocks might serve as stones in living, breathing ecclesiastical structures throughout the British countryside. I know the, the metaphor falls apart a bit, but it stands that Jesus' death and resurrection is what has enabled us, the living stones, to unite in him, the precious cornerstone, that we might literally become the church, that we might proclaim his greatness, that we might unite ourselves around his mercy, and that we might continue to grow as the community of the gospelized. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the ways in which you speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit. We know that it's not through the tongues of men and women, but through the illumination of the Holy Spirit that you bring about change in our lives. We ask this morning that as this church community continues to focus on what it means to be the community of the gospelized, as it continues to unite in this place, as it continues to unite in its uh, ministry groups, that you would continue to impress upon 
everyone here the importance of what it means to be a living stone oriented around Christ as the central figure. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship today. We trust in you to work in us and through us as we go about our business this week. And give us the strength and the ability and the insight to proclaim the excellence of the one who has brought us out of darkness into light as we go forth this week. We pray these things with hope and expectation in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.